This is the gospel reading from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tish Harris Warren, uh, many of you know her by the work, uh, her, her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary. We've read that in City Church in different occasions. Um, she had an op-ed in the New York Times this past week called, I Miss Singing in Church. And she observes just a very simple and common truth that we all understand, and it's just simply this, that we often don't value things until they're taken from us, until they're missing. So for example, we value health more when we're sick or we've at least realized its value. We value family when we're in circumstances that stimulate or create homesickness. We value even idle conversation with a coffee barista when we can't go to our familiar coffee shop because of a lockdown. This pandemic has brought many things that we take for granted to an end in this season. But it's also a moment in the midst of these losses in which we realize certain values, the value of having a body, the value of physicality, the value of gathering physically present to one another. Near the end of her piece, she um, talks about or connects the dots of our losses in these newfound values or realized values to the person of Jesus. Listen to what she writes. She says, we believe that God came not as a book or a codex of laws or as a hologram or as a creed or an idea, but as a person in a body as Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus in that incarnation, rather, God redeems the embodiment itself. Therefore, she says, we believe in the resurrection, not merely of the soul floating away to some ephemeral mist, but also of the body. The aim of Christian faith is not really the assurance 
of our soul's continued existence in a place called heaven. Of course, it includes something like that, but the main emphasis or the aim is that God intends that we would have risen bodies at home in God's new creation, which is the union of God's world, heaven, with our world, earth. All that was ruptured in our life with God and our life with one another and our life even with the environment and with nature is restored and put right once and for all. That's the vision that John has near the end of the book of Revelation. Jesus rose bodily from the grave and the new creation started, began. So we just read Mark's account of the resurrection story of Jesus. His account is short, it's terse, and it leaves us hanging at the very end with a question. Let's think about this account uh, in three ways. The women, the story of the angel, and the mission that is given. So the women. So Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, they come to the tomb early that Sunday morning with spices in hand. Now Mark names these women for a variety of reasons perhaps. One might have been simply that they'd be familiar faces to the community that Mark was writing about. They might Think, for example, oh, Mary, the mother of James, let's go find her and hear the story again. Tell us the story of the first Easter once again. Mark almost certainly includes their names because they're real people, and they're real people that anchor this event in history, something that happened, not a myth, not pretend, not make-believe. But Mark wants us to know about these women on this particular morning, morning, that they have arrived at the tomb carrying spices to complete the actions of burial, the ritual of burial. They have not arrived expecting to find the risen Jesus, though he had prophesied of himself that he would rise in three days. They have come expecting to find the dead body of Jesus. And they're surprised to find the stone rolled. And this is when they encounter the angel. So they go inside of the tomb and they find there a young man dressed in white, uh, sitting to the right of where the body might have been laid. Uh, but there's no body of Jesus uh, and they are alarmed. You can imagine yourself being in that circumstance and the alarm that they would have felt. On the one hand, if you've expected to show up and find the body of Jesus that you might anoint it and offer spices that would deaden the smell, you, um, you're startled that it's not there, but even more so, you might be startled by this figure of a man in white, uh, this angelic being. Whenever human beings encounter angels, they are startled in the Bible. You know those stories. Uh, and the angel does exactly what we might expect him to do and what he would say in other stories. Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. And then he begins to tell the story of what's happened. Jesus is not here. He is risen from the dead. He is alive. But their response has not been an immediate response of faith and belief but it's naturally a response of shock, which would be our response as well, I think we should honestly admit, because there were no categories in their mind or their expectation that Jesus should rise from the dead there in the middle of history where nothing else seems to have changed except his missing body. Finally, think about the mission uh, that is uh, given here to these women. Um, the women are the first that are called to speak, preach, and proclaim the story of Jesus' resurrection. And here, uh, as that happens to these three women, 
Now, if you're familiar with the story of Mark, the his gospel of Jesus, and as we've been going through this over the last months, you know that very often Jesus, when he encounters someone, a being or an individual, uh, even the demons, when he encounters them and they discern who he is as Messiah, he doesn't let them speak. In fact, he's always saying things like, be quiet, don't tell anyone, don't reveal what you've just seen. Scholars think or refer to this as the messianic secret, and they understand or think that by it, Jesus and Mark, as he tells the story, is simply trying to help the audience, the reader, the people in the moment to not box Jesus in by their own expectations and ideas about who a Messiah is and what the Messiah would do or what the nature of salvation is. In their particular moment, their immediate circumstance was one of political oppression by an outside force by Rome. And so their imagination for salvation was consumed by that one thing. What Mark wants to do as he tells the story of Jesus is he wants to let Jesus define himself. Who is the Messiah? What is the Messiah like? And what is the kind of kingdom that he is bringing? And so when we read the full story of Jesus' life, we see the nature of God's kingdom as a place in which all of life, at least his life, is put right in the way he relates to God and right in the way he relates to his fellow neighbor, every one of them. Let Jesus define himself and demonstrate the meaning of Messiahship and the meaning of the kingdom of God. But here, there's a new turn in the story. Jesus is risen. He's not there. He's alive. And at this point in the gospel story, the angel tells the women, go tell. Go tell the disciples. And by the way, include Peter, right? That's important because we know Peter's story has a bruise upon it because of his denial. We would feel bruised as well if we were exposed as Peter was exposed and so often exposed. And here the angel simply says, Go and tell the disciples, these men who are followers of Jesus, who are not at the tomb, go tell them about the resurrection. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. He will meet you there. Now, this is the point turning the story, verse 8 where we feel like we're left hanging. And this also, by the way, is where most scholars would say that Mark's original gospel ends, at least what we have of it ends. It sure seems like the rest of the gospel as it's recorded in our, in our English Bibles is an add-on at a later time because of the way it shows up in the manuscript evidence. And the reason for that might be something as simple as it's very unsatisfying to end a story like this with a lingering question. Notice what the women did. They fled because they were amazed and they were terrified. And then Mark comments, they said nothing for they were afraid. This is all we have of their reaction, the very first part of it, the moment when they're lingering in their own doubt, their own uncertainty, their own fear and anxiety. And you can imagine in that particular moment with all of the pressure politically and uh, religiously upon the followers of Jesus, that of course they would be afraid and they would not speak. Mark leaves us with a lingering question. What did Mary and Mary and Salome do? If you want to complete the story, you can read the other gospel accounts. More of the story is told. You can read into the early chapters of Acts and you find out what the early church did with the message of these women that they brought to the disciples. 
and how their life as a community was transformed. But for the moment, as we sit with Mark's story, we're left with this lingering question, what did they do? And really, what will we do? Do you remember that as we started our study of the Gospel of Mark, we've said frequently throughout that what Mark leaves the reader with is really two questions. And the one is very simply this, will you and will I let the real Jesus who is risen engage our life story? engage the story that I live now, that you live now. And the second part of the question is like it, it's am I actually open to the kind of kingdom that Jesus demonstrated by his life? Am I open to the healing and to the kind of love and to the kind of truth-telling that Jesus is always engaging in in the story of his life? So what will we do with this news of this Jesus, the crucified and yet risen one, with the change that he invites into our lives, not just for some later future moment at the completion and the fulfillment of his kingdom, but now, today, even in the midst of a pandemic. If sin is that which ruptures community and life with God and with one another, in death, Jesus has taken that rupture to himself and done away with it forever. And in his resurrection, he invites us to rise with him into life, living now among one another as those loved by God and renewed by his spirit, as we look for and wait for the day when he brings the story to its fullest expression. As we look around our lives today in Philadelphia and beyond in the country and even really in the whole world, the lockdown that is in place reminds us of our fragility, that our bodies are fragile. We are not um, able to defend ourselves against common disease or extraordinary disease. And our emotions are fragile, and you've probably experienced that over these weeks of lockdown as you've moved in your own mind from a, this is a temporary moment to this is lasting longer than I want to I'm tired of being alone in my house or I'm tired of being with the people that are in my house or I just want to go to the coffee shop. We want to be near one another because God has made us with bodies to live embodied experiences we have a lot of not yet going on in our experience this resurrection morning, but we are comforted today by the reality of the resurrection of Jesus because new creation has started. And what does that mean? How does it comfort us? It comforts us in the assurance that we belong to God's future. We belong to all that God has done in Jesus and all that he promised in his resurrection and all that he says he will finish doing. He will bring us to that ending. And so there's a comfort in that. There's a confidence in that. But we're also strengthened for a life of love now. Why? Because we possess the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's how the Apostle Paul put it. I want to leave you this morning with a poem that was written long ago by the poet George Herbert. It captures the beauty of this invitation to life in his poem called Easter. Listen, rise heart, thy Lord is risen. Sing his praise without delays, who takes thee by the hand that thou likewise with him mayest raise. That as his death calcined thee to dust, his life may make thee gold and much more just. 
Friends, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.